Welcome to the Hudson Wesleyan Church Podcast, a recording of the weekly messages of Pastor Wesley Rowan during the Sunday worship service. We trust the time you spend listening will enhance your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here is Pastor Wes. In Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 is known as the Beatitudes. It's in fact, in some ways, the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew uh, 5 and following, is sometimes uh, called um, really the, the decree of the kingdom or, or sort of the constitution of the kingdom of God. Like, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? I mean, it's really Jesus packs it into this, his most famous sermon. And if, if we think of it in, in that terminology, maybe, that the the constitution of the kingdom of God is found in the Sermon on the Mount. The beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5 is, so, is sort of um, like, like the Bill of Rights, except in, instead of the Bill of Rights, it's, it's the, the, the quick layout of the expectation of what we can know of our relationship with God. And it, goes, it's, it has all of those phrases, you know, blessed are the, the peacemakers and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so when a lot of people think Sermon on the Mount, they think Beatitudes, right? Just like when, when you think Constitution, you might think Bill of Rights. You might be able to get through some of them, but you probably don't remember all of them. You certainly don't know the rest of the Constitution probably by heart. If you do, hats off to you. But the Sermon on the Mount goes much farther than the Beatitudes, and so we're actually going to be looking at some things from the Sermon on the Mount during this series where we talk about the cross before me, the world behind me. What does it mean to be people of the cross? So in Matthew chapter 5, after the Beatitudes, Jesus continues on speaking, and he says, I'm not going to read all of verses 13 through 20, but that's kind of where I'm focusing. He says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything anymore, except just to be thrown out, maybe to be trodden under the foot of men. In other words, if you can't use it for flavoring, put it out on the road. There's nothing really it can do for you anymore. Throw it in the ditch. And then he says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set up on a hill can't be hid. Neither do people light a candle and then put it under a basket. No, they set it out on a table where it gives light to everybody in the house. And so let your light shine before men so they can see you. Not so that they can be impressed by you, but so they can glorify your Father in heaven. That takes us through verse 16. We'll talk a little bit more about other parts of it as we go along. I want to talk to you about a word this morning, the word testimony. I was thinking when Carrie was sharing the history of that song that we um, were singing last week and and this week about uh, the no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. And she was talking about that man whose children were martyred in front of him. His wife was killed in front of him. And the, the, the chief of that village said, if you don't renounce your faith, we're going to kill you too. And he said, how can I turn back? The cross before me. That's a testimony. And in some of our traditions in church growing up, we actually had services that were called testimony services. Does anybody remember what a testimony service was? 
Yeah, what was a testimony service? This is exactly what it sounds like, right? People giving testimony. Now you say, well, isn't testimony like a legal word? Like what, what does that have to do with church? Well, let's think about it. What does the word testimony, how is it used in, in society, particularly in legal terms? What is a testimony? It's an account, yep. It's a story of what? Something that you did or know firsthand, right? Something that you know to be true. So if you get called as a witness in a legal case to give testimony, you know what they don't want to know? What you think happened. They got attorneys for coming up with what they think happened. They don't want testimony of what you think happened. They don't want testimony about what you heard your neighbors say happened, right? What do they want testimony of? They want testimony of what you know to be true. What did you see? What did you experience? What is your expertise, right? In fact, some people are called expert witnesses that give expert testimony, Their knowledge base is so vast in a particular area that the words that they speak are considered concrete for whatever that topic may be, and that's testimony. Well, in the church, a testimony is something that we say, usually, about something that we know to be true. It's giving an accounting a story, our, our story of what God has done for us, something we've seen him do, something we are thankful that he is doing. That's a testimony. But a testimony is not just what we say, it is also what we give, how we live. See, you can give testimony to something that God has done for you, but other people can see the testimony of what God is doing in you. And so, going back to the story that Carrie shared with us last week, the man willing to be martyred gave a testimony, and then the chief who had him killed was converted by what he saw, by the testimony that he perceived in that other man. If we are going to keep the cross before us, we are going to be people who have a different sort of existence than other people around us. And I want you to hear me on this. I am not saying that Christians should walk around thinking they are better than everybody else. But I do want you to realize this. If we don't see that we should be different than the world around us, then we are not really experiencing Jesus, are we? Jesus came to change things. And so if we aren't acting or living changed, there would be some question about our testimony. Are we different? Do we live different? You might say, Pastor, being different's no fun. Standing out isn't, isn't enjoyable. It's easier to fit in. It's easier to go with the flow. It's easier to, but that's not the call of the cross. Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me is going to have to do what? Take up his cross. And in order to take up his cross, what's he going to have to do or she going to have to do? 
deny themselves. In other words, Jesus was laying it out for them right off of the bat. You want to follow me? It's not going to be what you want it to be. Oh, it's going to be more fulfilling than you could ever imagine it would be, but it's not going to be the script that you would draw up. So he says here, you are the salt of the earth. So I began thinking, well, so what, we, salt is something we rarely think about, right? You run out of salt, you go to the store, buy a whole thing of it for like 89 cents. I mean, it's super cheap, right? You just, you get it. And what do you use it for? To raise your cholesterol, of course. So we, we put it in our food, we season stuff with it. Anybody else here just, just you, like, you like some salt on your food? Can you admit it? You just, I mean, I, I make food, Carrie loves, I make food and Carrie will say, can you just bring me the salt when you bring the food to the table? I'm like, I've salted it. She's like, I know, bring me the salt. Um, and that's okay, because we, again, it's plentiful. We have it, Right? I, I, I salt my food quite a bit. I don't know. I just bland is, I don't know. I can't do it. But I got to thinking, but what did Jesus mean when he said salt? You see, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, salt was a lot more valuable than we place value on it today. Do you know why? It wasn't because it did really anything different than what we use it for. It was valuable because it was hard to get. It's hard to get. It was hard to produce. It was hard to get it out of the salt mines and transport it. And so when Jesus says salt of the earth, yes, he was talking to them and they had notions in their head about what does salt do, but he was also saying to them, what you are is of value to the people around you, to the earth that you live on. It's a value to them. In fact, salt was so rare that sometimes soldiers in the Roman army would be paid in salt instead of wages. And that was considered a, a, good, a good deal if you were paid in salt. In fact, our word salary comes from a Latin word that was originally based off of the word for salt. So if you go to work next week and Friday comes and you go to pick up your paycheck and there's just some Mortons there in the, you know, in your mail slot or wherever you get your paycheck at work, how happy are you going to be? Not very, because we don't live in the Roman Empire (laughs) in the first century. But it was that valuable to them. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, yes, you do something, but what you do brings value to the society that we live in. And I want you to remember that. Why does it bring value? It's not because of what we are doing. It's because of the one that we are following. I cannot stress this enough for us. When we talk about the cross before me, the world behind me, it is not that we are saying, I'm going to do better at pursuing Jesus. I don't want to burst your bubble this morning, but you're no good at pursuing Jesus, and neither am I. That's why Jesus comes and pursues us. But once he has 
gotten a hold of us, when we have surrendered ourselves to him, he begins to make us into something that is beneficial, not just to us, but to the people around us. We have all met people, and I'm not saying that this is just like only Christians can be valuable to, to the society that they're in. That's not what I mean. But I will say that to the extent that anybody mirrors anything that is found in the image and behavior of Jesus Christ, they find the value in it. We've all met people where we're like, you know what, that's a good person to have in the boardroom. That's a good person to have in the committee meeting. That's a good person to have to work next to. They bring a sense of, of just uh, tranquility and, and, and uh, uh, work and, and of caring about other people. And when they walk in a room, you get the sense that they, that they just care about you, that they're, they're people of love and compassion and grace and don't see themselves as being so, too big of a deal. You notice it when people live a humble, cross-centered life. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Well, what does salt do? I mean, it might be rare, but if it, if it doesn't accomplish something, it's not really very valuable. There are a lot of things that are rare we don't see very often, but we don't really want them either, you know? When I'm driving down the road, there's lots of animals that sometimes you see cross the road. You'll see deer cross the road. You'll see squirrels cross the road. You know, birds flying across the road. You'll, you'll see different animals, you know, the occasional, you may be groundhog. Um, sometimes you'll see a possum make it halfway across the road. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of animals that you see crossing the road, all right? I don't, you don't see many skunks crossing the road. There, I mean, you see them, but you don't see them as much as other animals. But when you see a skunk, you don't go, oh, well, we better stop and get it. It's rare. We better take it home. Why? Because there's no value in that. In fact, there's a deficit there. So it's not just that salt is rare, but it must do something of value. Well, what does salt do? Salt changed the world when it was discovered that it could be used to preserve food. Before refrigeration, before the, you know, you just put it in the freezer and we'll just put it in the microwave when we want it. Before any of that, the idea that you could pack something in salt and you could preserve it changed the ability to have food that was out of season as part of our diets. Not only that, but salt, besides flavoring, so it brings flavor, it also preserves but you know what else salt does? Salt also is able to break down fiber and certain materials. Now, you know we use salt like to help break down ice, right? The chemical reaction that helps to break down ice in the winter. But it also actually breaks down some of the part, like in meat. Like if you put salt into meat, like there, there's some chemical reactions that happen there, okay? So salt does many things that bring value besides the fact that it at least at one time was rare. It preserves, it breaks down, it flavors. Jesus says, if the salt loses its flavor, it cannot be made salty again. If you take the salt shaker and you put it on your food, and you're like, 
This doesn't taste any more flavorful than before. The salt's not doing its job. You can't take that jar of salt back to the salt factory and say, hey, give it a, shock it again. You know, give it its saltiness back. When the saltiness is gone, there's nothing you can do with it. You got to replace it. Bonhoeffer wrote one of the classical Christian books on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a copy of it on that table back there. The Cost of Discipleship. And he said in that book, Jesus did not say you have the salt of the earth or you should become the salt of the earth. He said to them, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, if you have me, then you are the salt of the earth. But it does not happen. You do not become the preservation of the society around you. You don't become the thing that affects the people around you in a positive way. You don't become the thing that flavors others' lives with love and grace and compassion by continuing to embrace the kind of people that we used to be. The world behind me. The world behind me. No turning back. Lot's wife is leaving the city as it's being destroyed behind her. And they've been warned, don't look back. Flee to the hills. And she looks back. Out of longing, maybe. Out of fear, perhaps. <laughs> maybe she remembered something that she, oh, I forgot to pack. I don't know. But there was something that drew her back to where she had been. And the scriptures tell us that she was turned to a pillar of salt, just like that. You cannot be, I cannot be, people of the cross if we're busy wrapping our arms around all the stuff of the world. Wes, are you saying that the stuff of the world is, is bad, that it's evil, that we shouldn't enjoy any of it? No. But I am saying this. If we don't fall out of love with the world and the stuff that it has, we probably will not fall very far in love with Jesus. He went on, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. Why would you light a candle and then put it under a basket? If the power goes out in your house, you say, where did we put those candles, right? Because you never know where the candles are till the power goes out. Where did we put those? The power doesn't go out and then you grab a candle, light it, 
and then cover it up with something. That wouldn't make any sense. He might as well just not light it, right? You don't turn on the flashlight and then stick it under your coat. What would be the point? You are the light of the world. Light also influences the environment around it. If you're in a dark room and somebody walks in with a light, you know it, right? When, when you're working on something in a crawl space in your house or underneath your car and you try to get the light shined in just the right spot, you ever had that privilege, right? Or when we were kids and you know dad would be working on something and he would say, here, come hold this light for me. Did anybody ever hold the light right where their dad told him to hold it? No. He would always, no, I need it over here. No, you're not, not quite, because he could see where he wanted it to go. You didn't know, you were just pointing it, Right? But when someone shines a light in a dark space, it's immediately noticeable. I wonder, are the people of the cross noticeable in their environments? I don't mean noticeable like people go, oh, look who just walked in. No, I mean noticeable because they're changing the environments that they're in. The places that we work and live and interact, our neighborhoods, our businesses, are places that are more grace-filled where people find themselves being more kind and forgiving and they don't even know why. It's because the salt is being spread around whether they recognize it or not. Someone has walked into the dark space with a light and they don't even necessarily know that's what's happening, but they find themselves being led and developed into things like grace and forgiveness and compassion and truth and honesty. Are the people of the cross, us, Are we people whose testimony, the things we speak to, the things that we know, are things of the cross? What is the cross about? The cross is about giving up self. The cross is about redemption, about hope, about eternal life. This is the cross. And if we are people of the cross, are we seasoning and lighting, and affecting our environments with those components of hope and grace and forgiveness. Are we? I have known of instances of people some that I've heard of, maybe some that I've known, that I thought, if that's the way we're going to live, I just assume you left your name of Christian at home. This wouldn't have been true 75 years ago, probably. But it is true today the people that you interact with on a weekly basis do not care what you call yourself. They really don't. But they do care about how you live. They care about the seasoning that you bring into the environment. Or at very least, they are far more likely to notice that than they are to notice how you label yourself. Labels are a dime a dozen in our world today. They, they are. 
I don't know. I don't know if this is good or bad. I don't know if pastors are allowed to say this and do this. So I don't know. This live stream may mysteriously disappear in a couple of hours, but I'm going to tell you. I'm not that keen right now on simply saying to people, I'm a Christian. Because it's a label. And it means a thousand different things. I'm not that keen on telling people that I'm a pastor. But I do want people to know that I love Jesus. That's what I want them to see from me. My friends, the way of the cross is not necessarily an easy way. Jesus said it's going to cost everything that you've got, but it's free. Try to figure that one out. No wonder the disciples sometimes came to Jesus like Darcy was reading for us and said, hey, look, maybe we're just dumb, but could you tell us what you mean? But that's what he says. My call for us as a congregation, look, we're not a huge church. We're a small church in a small town, down in the corner, a small corner of the state of Michigan. We're just 20 minutes from God's country, but here we are, okay? What if just 30 or 40 of us had a testimony of what we know? Paul would put it this way, what do you know? I've decided not to really know anything except Jesus Christ. Let him, let him do the rest, the power of his resurrection. At the end of the Bible, John is having a vision about things that will take place. And there is war going on between good and evil. And we get all caught up in the book of Revelation about trying to figure out, like, well, so what's going to happen? And when's it going to happen? And Jesus said, you're not going to know when it's going to happen. And we say, but we want to know when it's going to happen. He said, I don't know when it's going to happen, but we would really like to know when it's going to happen. And we forget the rest of what the book of Revelation shows us. Things like there's this vast, vast number of people that we are told have been martyred for their faith but yet they overcame. And the battle between good and evil, even though it looked like they lost, they overcame. How did they overcome? This is what John says in the book of Revelation. They overcame by something really, really basic. And I want to read it for you. They overcame him, that is the evil one, because of three things. Three things. Would you, does anybody here just like a good formula? Like, look, just tell me how to get from here to where I need to be. Tell me the inputs that's going to get the outcome, okay? Here they are. You want to know what they are? Forget everything else I said this morning. You write these three things down. This is what it takes to overcome eternally, okay? The blood of the lamb, so what Jesus did for you, okay? So it starts with what he did, not with what you do. They overcame by the blood of the lamb, and the word of their testimony. So what Jesus did and their own expression or admittance to the truth of what Jesus did. What do we say testimony means? It's something that you know to be true. 
They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did, and the word of their testimony, how they accepted and lived out what Jesus did. And here's the last one, and this is the one that we stumble over. They did not love their lives even unto death. They picked up the call of Job from the Old Testament that said, even if he allows me to be slain, yet I will trust in him. Can you imagine Christians being so bold as to take what Jesus has done for them, claim for it to be absolutely true in every area of their life and not holding on to anything about our lives so tightly that we even our own existence that we weren't willing, willing to relinquish for him. You say, Wes, that, but you mean like everything? Like what if, what if he calls me to a, a different job or a different neighborhood or a different continent? What if he calls me to give up things that maybe they're not even sinful, but they're not really helping me on my journey to him? What, what if he calls me to befriend people that I really don't want to be seen around? What if? That's why I say that's the one we struggle with. We don't struggle too much with wanting, accepting what Jesus did for us on the cross. Yeah, that's awesome. Even the word of our own testimony, we want to we claim it to be true. But they did not love their lives even unto death. What if Christians lived that out? I think it would change the world. And there have been points all throughout Christian history where it has. So why not now? It is in other places, other parts of the world. Why not us? I have decided to follow Jesus. So we're going to conclude our service. I don't know if we'll do this every week, but I, I kind of think maybe we will. We'll see how the Lord leads. But we're going to conclude our service today by singing that other hymn about following Jesus that we sang last week as a declaration. You know, we have times of response in our worship services. Sometimes it's an invitation to come forward. Sometimes it's an invitation to change something in your life. Sometimes it's an invitation for something else. But our invitation really here during Lent is just to make a fresh declaration. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm not turning back. So we're going to end our service this morning just by singing those two verses of that song. I have decided to follow Jesus, okay? And the world behind me, the cross before me. And let that be our response. Let that be our declaration. And then let's go out this week to do it. God might put something in front of you this week that he goes, there's the opportunity. There's the chance. Take it. Live it. Testify to it. Let's just be open and aware to those things in this week and in the days to come. This message is a ministry of Hudson Wesleyan Church, where our mission is to see lives transformed for the glory of God. For more information, you may contact the church at 517-448-6411 or at hudsonwesleyan.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you.